Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Despite the awful grey drich weather, as they say in Scotland, uh, I'm bouncing off the walls because I'm enjoying teaching, being back in the classroom so much after two years. 75 amazing students at the LSE doing the master's course I run with uh, Tom Kirk on influencing and campaigning and activism. Uh, I've just been writing the slides for today's uh, post on complex systems, which is about the sort of geeky high point of the course. And then we get into all the practicalities. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good mood. Um, but I realise that not everybody is. So in the first post of the week, links I liked, I stuck quite a few jokes um, and funny bits. There's a absolutely achingly sweet video of a five-year-old describing the current UK political crisis, and she cannot say Prime Minister. I won't even try and um, um, uh, imitate how she says it, but it's lovely. And then somebody has synced some Punjabi music to a kind of Elvis the Pelvis dance routine uh, perfectly. So that looks absolutely brilliant as well. I mean, I just, you know, I think it's a public service to um, give a few laughs in these in these dark times. The rest of the week on Monday, I was kind of panicking. I thought, oh, well, I've got nothing in the can. I've got no blogs coming in. But then um, there's nearly always something in my in tray in my email inbox and sure enough a full week's worth was was waiting to be discovered there so first up was an email from heather marquette who's starting a newsletter or restarting or relaunching a newsletter on corruption crime and conflict and heather's an occasional contributor to the blog she writes really well and she must read you know voraciously i don't know how she finds the time but anyway the uh, newsletter is a kind of summary of what she's been reading in her work for SOC ACE, the Serious Organised Crime and Anti-Corruption Evidence Programme. Um, and so uh, she, the first two editions came out this week. So I sort of uh, put in some highlights. She had a big discussion on a recent F, uh, From Poverty to Power post. I left that out because, you know, th there are limits even to my self-citation tendencies. Uh, but you can subscribe and there's a link on the blog if you want to subscribe to the emails um, which which uh, come out when she when she posts a new collection so the post combines some in-depth discussion of things she's read and then a broader set of short links so the in-depth discussion was on the real crisis of global order by alexander cooley and daniel h nexon in foreign affairs cooley and nexon's piece um, has far too much in it that's worth reading i'm now reading in heather's voice to even begin to give it justice and is a genuine must read, particularly for anyone working on foreign policy, national security and strategy. Through use of a wide range of examples, they argue that in their current form, liberal institutions cannot stem the rising illiberal tide. Governments have struggled to prevent the diffusion of anti-democratic ideologies and tactics, both homegrown and imported. Liberal democracies must adapt to fend off threats on multiple fronts. But there is a catch. Any attempt to grapple with this crisis will require policy decisions that are clearly illiberal or necessitate a new version of liberal order. And then Heather says, there's so much in the piece and I can't just cut and paste it all here, though I would love to. They discuss the emergence of what they describe as asymmetric openness, where technological innovations that created more open flows of knowledge and commerce, along with illiberal policy choices by liberal democracies and a number of evolving adaptive authoritarian practices means we have 
the strange reality that the contemporary liberal world works better for authoritarian regimes than it does for liberal democracies. That's really interesting. Liberal democracies face many threats from within, including homegrown anti-democratic forces and a backlash against the ideas underpinning political liberalism, including the belief in certain universal rights and values. Whether in the examples they include, the US, the UK, Hungary and Uganda or beyond, illiberal forces connect together across borders in what's often referred to as the so-called culture wars to push back against the ideas underpinning universal human rights. And then Heather goes back into her own voice and says this has an impact on the area I personally work in as well. As Cooley and Nexon argue, I can't turn the page, um, the Biden administration has correctly declared corruption to be a national security risk. But anti-corruption measures will inspire blowback that also poses a national security concern. Aggressive measures will threaten politically connected oligarchs in Europe and elsewhere. Corrupt autocrats are likely to see a number of anti-kleptocracy efforts, such as expanding diligence requirements for service providers and prohibiting foreign officials from accepting bribes, as a serious threat to their regimes and will rally their publics against these new forms of domestic interference. In inverted commas. Important steps for conserving liberalism, even defensive ones, will generate pushback against the liberal order. And not just from overseas. Anti-corruption measures threaten a wide range of US politicians, business people and consultants. In recent years, and the odd president, I would argue, in recent years, and especially after the 2016 election, such measures have become another source of partisan polarisation. That, um, that is a really interesting set of conundrums. Is it conundrums or conundra? I've no idea. In an analysis published with Westminster Foundation for Democracy last year on doing anti-corruption democratically, Heather also discussed this danger. There is emerging evidence that suggests the fight against corruption itself can harm democracy. This includes things like anti-corruption messaging campaigns that leave people more likely to pay a bribe and less likely to feel they're able to do anything themselves to fight back. Sorry, chugging a lot of coffee this morning. Or how the reporting of corruption by investigative journalists and civil society um, can fuel populism and backlashes against democracy. Or where the politicisation of corruption in election campaigns can weaken democracy and may even lead to rising authoritarianism or violence. All of these are serious charges that need to be taken seriously. However, it's also important to remember that the real problem is not the anti-corruption interventions, but rather the corruption and the impunity of the powerful, perceived or otherwise. The solution needs to be tackling impunity, but this definitely doesn't mean we should continue doing the same anti-corruption things in the same ways as we do now. That is a really interesting set of arguments from both Heather and and, and the the people she's describing from foreign affairs. Uh, It takes a while to get your head around, but I recommend it. And then she runs through some shorts. A bonanza for people interested in smuggling can be found in the new Routledge Handbook of Smuggling, which sounds like it's a a how-to, but I presume it isn't, edited by Max Gallian and Florian Weigand, which is entirely open access. Yay! As a side note, Max's paper on researching the politics of illegal activities is a serious must-read for anyone in the field. A handbook of smuggling. Gosh. Okay. Uh, Two new articles on social bads and citizen attitudes. 
One from Amélie Godefroy on how terrorism does and does not affect citizens' political attitudes. And another by, my, by Heather's colleagues, Nick Cheeseman and Karen Pfeiffer, on the curse of good intentions, why anti-corruption messaging can encourage bribery, which is something she referred to earlier. Open Democracy has a report by Alice McCool and Katondi Saitu Wepukulu on US Conservatives spreading anti-vax misinformation to unvaccinated Uganda. This is disturbing with serious consequences for health security in Uganda and globally, as well as for the liberal order. And so on and so on and so on. Just link after link after link. Really useful. If you're interested in anything in this general area of anti-corruption security, um, please take a look at uh, Heather's um, post. Third post of the week got people chatting in a really interesting way. So another of the emails I got was from uh, Romilly Greenhill at the One Campaign. Uh, and it's about a launch of something called We the Helpers. Obviously, you know, riffing off We the People. And I called the blog, provocatively, I suppose, We the Helpers, White Saviorism or a Smart Defense of Aid? So Romilly was drawing my attention to the Aid Alliance, which is a group of NGOs, including Oxfam. So I really should have known about it, but I'd missed it somehow. Working together to build public support for UK aid. And this week it launched something called We the Helpers. So some thoughts from me. First, the message. The message is that aid is helping. And a quote from the, the blurb, from aid workers to donors to supporters like you, we are all the helpers. Today, millions more people have access to education, medicine, food and clean water. Decades of experience and progress mean the world is better now than it has ever been. Well, there's a lot of attribution questions about whether it's aid that means the world is better now, but let's get, let's get past that. And what I, argue, what I just said is that in the current climate, this kind of message is likely to provoke questions, and some of them are justified, about white saviorism. That idea that, you know, people in the aid business still think that it's the job of white people to go and save black people or brown people. Um, the commonest reaction amongst aid advocates to these allegations and to these fears is simply to back off and not try to make the case for aid, at least in public, for fear of being attacked as a neo-colonial. But that just means aid is all the easier to cut. It makes it, yeah, the enemies of aid are unopposed in public, at least. And it makes it easier for them to scrap, diff in, cut aid budgets and all the rest of it. Um, do we really think cutting aid budgets helps poor people and vulnerable communities? Has the scrapping of DFID and the 0.7% commitment in the UK, that's the commitment to spend at least 0.7% of gross national income on aid, has scrapping that helped anyone in need? Quite the opposite, in my opinion. And the campaign is very insistent that this is only about helping, i.e. supporting domestic, local efforts to improve people's lives. The video is also quite discomforting. Lots of standard images of aid helping people who need help. The helpers are nearly all non-white, but the video is a logo fest. Everybody's wearing a high vis with INGO logos, UN agencies and others. Okay, but back to my question. Some critics of aid may think people would be better off without any of that. But I think they are quite few in number. Surely the challenge is how to reform the existing aid institutions to make them more effective and accountable to the communities they serve. And you can't reform something that doesn't exist because all its funding has been cut. Then final point is some really interesting stuff about the targeting of behind the campaign, the, the, the arguments and the research behind the campaign from Romilly. The point of this content is to reach a very specific UK audience. I should have said this is about UK aid. 
uh, I should have said that at the beginning, what we're calling conscientious cynics. This group is transactionally engaged in discussions on aid, but have lost any emotional connection or belief in progress. They are white retirees, 60 plus, living in urban areas across the country, not London. Many are grandparents and family is hugely important to them. They're financially comfortable and of a higher social grade ABC, conservative or Brexit leaning and proud to be British. Our insight work, which is the research they've done, tells us they don't feel connected to a sense of progress, so they've stopped believing they can make a difference. We are aware that some people may not like the idea of aid as help, and to be honest, I agree with them in many ways, but we're really trying to meet people where they're at, as per the above. This group is quite conservative and Brexit-leaning, quite traditional in their views, so we're really trying to meet them halfway and have spent years doing insight work and focus group and testing on works on what works. So very interesting exercise, um, both from a research point of view and from a sort of narrative framing point of view. Um, and I put them up with the video for the campaign and said, what do you think? And there was a really good exchange. You know, people coming in saying this is great. People coming in saying um, both these ideas are terrible. Obviously, white saviorism is nonsense, but so is um, aid. Uh, yeah, lots of different views. Um, so, and I summarized my response to the to the views as this is a really good exchange. As a one kind sympathetic to the idea of replacing us helping them narratives with what David calls one of the commenters, a grown up conversation about aid and development. But unfortunately, also as a wonk, I think the research suggests that that, that level of complexity will turn off a large part of the public who don't have enough time, interest or bandwidth for that kind of thing. We can't ask everybody to be aid wonks. And of course, admissions of the messiness and failures that are an inevitable part of aid and government policy for that matter, will always be seized on by aid critics who have no interest in a fair debate. But on the other hand, I agree the tropes feel tired, you know, people, us helping them, and lead over the decades to people saying, how come this is still necessary? We've been helping them for decades. Why isn't it fixed? So I just don't know. And I'm going to sit firmly on the fence like this about this and see what else comes in in the comments. Well, the final post of the week, back to corruption. And this one is uh, the latest Corruption Perceptions Index from Transparency International. The, this, this comes out every year. It's always really interesting. Um, yeah, firstly, it's interesting because of the, the, the countries that have really got better or worse. And this is Corruption's Perceptions Index. So they ask a bunch of people in the country concerned, has corruption got better or worse? So yeah, they, they don't have any objective way of measuring it beyond perceptions, but it's still really interesting. And yeah, the, the, the countries that have got better are surprising in many ways. Uh, uh, ditto the countries that have got worse. So the biggest uh, uh, improvers are Armenia, Angola, South Korea, Uzbekistan, Moldova and Ethiopia. And the biggest um, droppers are Venezuela, Honduras, Nicaragua and weirdly Canada. Don't know what that's about. Um, so that's like the, 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 the countries that have moved most over the last five years. But the thing that got me was that this particular one, this particular report, links corruption and human rights. The 2021 CPI results show that countries with well-protected civil and political liberties generally control corruption better. Now, whenever you read a statement like that, your next question should be, OK, but what causes what? what which direction is the arrow of causation? And this report argues that causation runs both ways. Corrupt regimes need to repress protests against their own corruption. 
and repressive regimes have fewer checks and balances to stop people stealing. So corruption causes uh, repression and repression causes corruption. Our analysis of this year's CPI results shows that upholding human rights is crucial in the fight against corruption, with countries who violate civil liberties generally scoring lower on the CPI. Corruption undermines the ability of governments to guarantee the human rights of their citizens. This affects the delivery of public services, the dispensation of justice and the provision of safety for all. In particular, grand corruption committed by high-level officials usually combines the large-scale transnational theft of public funds with gross human rights violations. Our analysis shows that such corruption schemes, often facilitated by advanced economies who score well on the CPI, please note, exacerbate repression by allowing autocrats to, first, enjoy looted funds, employing complicit bankers, lawyers and real estate brokers in major financial centres, the corrupt can store their illicit gains, reward cronies and further concentrate their power. Second, launder their reputation by bribing foreign by launder their reputation abroad, sorry. By bribing foreign politicians and employing Western PR firms and lobbyists, authoritarian and kleptocratic regimes soften international pressure on their human rights record. Third, evade accountability. Through the abuse of secret companies and anonymous investments, the corrupt can hide their wrongdoing from law enforcement or judicial bodies and escape consequences. Human rights are not simply a nice to have in the fight against corruption. Authoritarianism makes anti-corruption efforts dependent on the whims of an elite. Ensuring that civil society and the media can speak freely and hold power, and hold power to account is the only sustainable route to a corruption-free society. Fundamental rights such as freedom of expression, freedom of assembly and access to justice guarantee public participation and keep corruption in check. The current wave of authoritarianism is not driven by coups and violence, but by gradual efforts to undermine democracy. This usually begins with attacks on civil and political rights, efforts to undermine the autonomy of oversight and election bodies and control of the media. Such attacks allow corrupt regimes to evade accountability and criticism, allowing corruption to flourish. Corruption and, corruption and impunity make it unsafe for people to speak up and demand justice. 98% of the 331 murders of human rights defenders in 2020 occurred in countries with high levels of public sector corruption. Wow. So there's a very, very tight link between the murders of human rights defenders and corruption. At least 20 of these cases were human rights defenders specifically focusing on anti-corruption issues. And this is, I mean, just to conclude, this feels for me like a bit of departure for Transparency International, which is often quite technical and sort of, you know, just says we're just doing corruption. This very clearly links up anti-corruption to a wider, more political, if you like, human rights message. I mean, apologies if I've just missed this in the past, but this feels like an interesting departure for them and a very welcome one, I think. Uh, and it's a very persuasive argument that the two are inextricably linked. Right. Uh, have a great weekend. That was quite a sort of techie set of blogs, but I hope you enjoyed them and uh, speak next week. Bye.